0: I want to talk about things that are the eternal truths that the Buddha taught, and she's just named an essential eternal truth uh, that being alive is uh, is so challenging, you know. That uh, and if you didn't hear in the back, she was saying, you know, outside of my particular <coughs> sphere of troubles, there's the sphere of troubles of everybody else, and then around that. If we want to pick a sphere of troubles, should we pick the troubles in the government? Should we try pick the troubles in the pollution in the atmosphere? Should we pick the troubles in the wars all over the place or the degradation of the planet in general? Which troubles should we look at? Um, it takes really a, a, a very um, steady mind to be able to look at the fact that this is a, a, a very problematic thing, this being alive in this world. And for me, it requires also the steadiness of mind that can look at all of that and not forget that it's positioned in the even larger truth, perhaps, that this world itself is in the middle of a galaxy, in the middle of a solar system, in the middle of a galaxy, it's en- there's an enormous, awesome, amazing fact that here we are on. Uh, I think there was a television program for a while back called Third Rock from the Sun." <laughs> you know that that somewhere another somewhere out there, there could be astronomers in some other galaxy, mm-hmm. looking at the, our star and saying, "Look at that star over there!" And you know what? There are a couple of actually rocks floating around it in. In these elliptical orbits, and we're on the, we're the third rock from the sun and sometimes when I think about the fact that i I can imagine that when I was a child, my father used to take me to the New York planetarium a lot because he loved it, and you know you everybody here has been to a planetarium and they make the lights so dark and you look up at all those stars, and they tell you how far away they are and Here we are in our own lives, feel so little. And yet, uh, in our lives, if it's our person, our partner, our parent uh, that's in some way in jeopardy, the whole world disappears with the galaxies and everything else while we are thinking about that person and wanting so much for her or for him to be well or to succeed or do all right. Uh, they have these peculiar minds that uh, are necessarily self-preoccupied because we have to take care of ourselves and maneuver through our lives and have the capacity also to think about the whole world and what can I do for this planet that's going to sustain the next generation and uh, what about my child who's having so much trouble with algebra? What should I do with those two things? Um, I'm suddenly reminded of a movie. Ah, I've, it may have been called *Miss Congeniality*. I'm not sure, but it was a very lighthearted movie about um, uh, Miss America contests. You may remember it. Anyway, Miss America contests, and it you know it it purports to be the story of <coughs> one particular year of these contestants, very tremendously groomed and. Uh, in great shape, women uh, who go through the uh, the whole who get picked from their states to be Miss America and they go through the whole pageant and um, there's a part of the pageant where after the after it's about it used to be many many years ago when I was young, it used to be just on how people looked. And that actually, after 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 the feminist uh, consciousness in the 1960s, 70s, couldn't do that anymore. So then they had a talent. They added a talent. So you had to look great and play the flute, or <laughs> look get great and play the piano, or be able to dance on point or something. So you had your body, and then you had the talent. And after that, they added uh you had to have an each contestant got interviewed by Bob Barker or whoever it was that who was the m c of them, and they asked you a question presumably spontaneously, <laughs> and they uh ranked you on you know how well you answered the question and uh so one but meant to be funny part of uh the pageant. Is I guess that in this particular pageant they were asking, what would be your dearest wish? And most people had wishes for the world, world peace, the end of world hunger, world peace, the end of suffering, world peace. And one particular woman, the contestant that you have gotten to like the most, and you really wanted to win, when they ask her, what is your dearest wish? She wishes something for herself like a partner or whatever it was, some personal success. She said, what I really, really most like is, and she says her thing, and you can see the audience is aghast. (laughs) Suddenly everybody is still in their seats, wide open eyes, not a sound in the whole place, and she looks around and gets it, and she says, and world peace. (laughs) (laughs) But, the truth is that that's how it is for us. You know, we have these remarkable minds. That when you're in the in the uh, in the next room and your person is having surgery, your person is having a difficult childbirth in the next room, your anyone is anything. Only thing you can think about at that time is that person coming through successfully. You're not thinking about world peace at that time. And truth to tell, if some magic fa- magic uh, uh, what do you call those things that come out of Jean, Jean, genie came out of a bottle and said you have one wish now whatever it is I'm a wish fulfilling genie you get one wish you'd have to stop and think you know I think I don't even know what in the end I would wish but but it's remarkable that we're alive and for me Robin it seems to me that the 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 hope of meditation is not only to see suffering more clearly so we'll be more responsive to it and more kind, more kind, but also to be able to see it's amazing to be alive. Look what's going on. Look what people can do. There's somebody now who's in negotiations with the city of Niagara Falls to be able to get permission to walk across the falls on a, on a wire. <laughs> He's one of those people who walks, well, it's, it's a fanambulist, I think it's called. You walk, you walk across, walk through, somebody did it in, uh, Michel Petit, I think, did it between the, the, the two build- World Trade Center buildings before Man they were done. The documentary was called Man on a Wire. Yeah. Man on a Wire. Yeah. And someone came, you know, his people came up in the night, strung the wire, yeah. And people are walking in New York the next day, and there he is walking up there, and already doing it. And this guy over Niagara Falls is having trouble getting his—he's um, a well-known wire walker, so he comes from a—he uh, he comes from the, the family of the Flying Wallandas, you know, they're the very famous trapeze artists, and um, he's going to do it carrying something or something or other. But he has to get permission from both mm-hmm. cities, uh, Niagara in Canada and Niagara in New York State. And the Canada city is a flourishing city. Niagara Falls, alas, is not such a flourishing city. It used to be a honeymoon destination a uh, hundred years ago. And uh, you go up on the train from New York or New Jersey, and it's kind of fallen into disrepair. And uh, they say this is going to just make it worse and be really commercialized, and he's saying no, make it better. Millions of people will come and want to see it, and Niagara will be. Anyway, but there are people who want to do that, and people and we watch that. We don't want to do it. But we just, <laughs> ah, look at that, you know. I I watch a, a thing on sports on TV from time. Called extreme sports, you know, because it's just amazing what people can do. Yes, yeah, see these on on Saturday afternoon television. If you go on the sports channel, there are there are international competitions on incredibly difficult things, and it's just wonderful to see that people have trained their bodies to do that. You know, it's just a different permutation of the of the ballerina just did you know sixteen pirouettes without putting her foot down, or or somebody did the, the Beethoven piano concerto in a marvelous way. It's wonderful to see what human beings can do. And they lift up the spirit. They do. Uh, this is replacing the news for you, right? <laughs> well, the news is nothing to do these days. I mean that, that, that's not so good, but but just to, you know when you think about when we walk, when we sit here in the spring, I am waiting for one of these is it spring? It's August. Forget about spring. But uh, and, and in the spring, when we sit here, and the baby deer go by, yeah. you know, we, yeah. we could be sit, talking about the most heavy things in the world, and everybody really consumed with the wars and perfidy in the government and all the stuff going on. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at you, so I don't see it. And there's a collective, <gasps> and I know that the deer are walking by. <laughs> And you know, they're just deer, they're not unicorns, but, you know, they're, but, but, they're, but they're this year's new crop of baby deer, which are so amazing because once again, you know when you think about it, I, I'm always, I mean, it's a ridiculous thing to say, of course, but if someone gives birth and you look at their baby and it looks like them. It's supposed to look like them or it looks like them. It looks like it's two parents. And say, look at that genetics. It's amazing. Look how that works. You can tell. Uh, There are things that we look at, and for some reason, because it's amazing, the mind picks up. Someone that has Heather's going to have that surgery this morning, and she's going to be fine. Some weeks from now, she's in the calendar to be teaching here on a Wednesday morning. So when when you come, and I'm not here that morning, big applause for Heather. Yay, happy that you're well. She'll be fine. Here is modern medicine, knows how to figure out what's the matter with Heather, and they're going to fix her up. A lot of things they can fix up, which they didn't used to be able to fix up. It's amazing. There are things that we can't still fix up. But that human beings are in there doing experiments and trying to figure how to fix it up, that lifts up the spirit. I met a man named, um, what was his name, because that's the important thing to say. That's really, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it, it's important in the story, and it's ridiculous that I forget his name, because the point I wanted to make is at the time it was a household name. <laughs> It'll come to me. Uh, I went to a a psychiatric uh, conference with my husband, probably in the 1970s, 80s, somewhere, in uh, in some European city. And at the end of the day, uh, we were making our way to the taxi stands outside. And uh, there was a man who we recognized, whose name still hasn't come to me. who no that was that, that, that would have come uh, but uh, oh fully, fully fully. Um, anyway, man who I recognized uh, waiting uh, leaning on his cane and uh, we uh, are you uh, you know uh, do you have someone picking you up? He said uh, no, he was waiting for a taxi, so we offered him a taxi to share our taxi, we'd take him wherever we were going. Um, pa! It'll come to me two minutes after I leave here. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he was the man who did a great deal of research in failure to thrive in neonatals, mm-hmm. that, um, that uh, they were discovering that an inordinate amount of children uh, in situations, uh, uh, in orphanage situations, where the orphanages were overcrowded, where they were fed enough... And had uh, you know enough calories to live. Bulby? Not caught, com- not Bulby, no no. Hmm? Brazelton. Not Brazelton, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's why I can't find it. It's one of them. It's, it's not <laughs> Piaget, no no. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. Uh um, Anyway, uh not Winnicott, but we're getting more. Not Winnicott. <laughs> yeah. Not Winnicott. He said, uh, anyway, uh, we asked him, you know, how he was, what was he doing these days, and he said, "I'm working hard because I'm trying to get all my my work written down." He said, because um, I, he said, "I have a deadline to meet in the <laughs> most liber- literal sense of the word," Aww. and uh, and I thought, wow, and now I'm thinking. I th- at the time, I thought it was very important for him to get his work out. At- Rene Spitz. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. That took a long time. <laughs> Rene Spitz. But I feel I feel better having remembered it. Rene Spitz. But at the time, the reason we recognized him was Rene Spitz was a household term. He preceded he or was co-with Winnicott at the time. and um, But he's, he was also the, the, the moving force be, behind the DSM, wasn't he? Wasn't he basically the, the person who the diagnostic and statistical? Yeah. Medical? I'm not sure. I think he was. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but he certainly was a leading light in, in psychiatric circles in those days, and particularly on that point of children, if they are not nourished, withholding them and talking to them, they have failure to thrive. They just, they don't, often, sometimes, not all the time, but often, just sort of don't thrive and don't continue to live. I think about that all the time when I watch people with new babies, um, especially, you know, just born, and they, you, you, if they, you know, if you're, they are they are your family, and you're visiting them, you see um, a young mother or father talking, holding a baby, they're talking to it all the time. So, hello, have you thought about what you're going to be when you grow up? You could be president of the United States. You know, these days girls are getting to be president of the United States. It doesn't matter so much what you say to them, but that that the sense of this person is relating to me is a sense that the psychologists now know is very easy to, to measure, that babies, babies track, they know that this kind of attention. So so Rene Spitz, and we thought, well, it was so exciting to meet Rene Spitz. Everybody knew about him. And now, not only had I said, do you know who Rene Spitz was, maybe half of us would, half of us would not I couldn't even remember it. So in terms of <coughs> prominence in the mind and things pass, so what I, what I really meant to talk about today, because it's been on my mind a lot, is the, the um, more to talk about impermanence, about that, that things pass. The Dalai Lama talked a lot about impermanence and uh, the importance of really grokking on every level what impermanence means that this moment will only be here, just now. We don't have all the time in the world to do everything. So the sense of urgency that comes with the sense of impermanence. Um, we can come back and talk about that. The sense of urgency that comes with impermanence. The sense of poignancy that comes with imp- that, that's a fact of impermanence. You know, if I have beautiful flowers. Um, and they're uh, in the middle of the table, and I look at them two days later, they're all finished, they were so beautiful two days before. They're beautiful when they're opening, they're really beautiful. The summer was very exciting when it started. The porch furniture was really beautiful, but in in the stores all setting out in front of the CVS, all this porch furniture you could buy, all these dishes that you could eat outdoors because they're so festive looking, and the summer was starting people were planning their holidays now the summer is halfway over yesterday i printed this out of the new yorker but uh, i thought i'd read it to you but i can there wasn't time to read the whole um, it's a star it's a story by um stephen millhauser i'll just read you the beginning and and the end He's nine, going on ten, skinny tall, shoulder blades pushing out like things inside a paper bag, new blue bathing suit, too tight here, too loose there, but what's that all got to do with anything? What's important is that he's here, standing by the picnic table, the sun shining on the river, the smell of pine needles and river water sharp in the air, where a shout, a laughter, music, there's somewhere a shout, laughter, music from a radio, his father's cleaning ashes out of the grill. His mother and sister are laying, on bla- laying down blankets on the sunny grass not far from the table. Grandma's carrying one of those aluminum folding chairs towards the high pine near the edge to the drop of the river. And he's doing what he likes best, what he's really good at, standing around doing nothing. <laughs> Everyone's forgotten about him for a few seconds, the way that happens sometimes. You try not to remind anybody you're there. He loves this place. On the table, the fat tables, the fat thermos jug with a white spout near the bottom. After his swim, he'll push the button on the spout and fill up a paper cup with pink lemonade. It sounds a good sound. In the picnic basket, he can see two packages of hot dogs, jars of relish and mustard, some bun ends showing, a box of Oreo cookies, a bag of marshmallows, which are marshmallows. So, why the A? (laughs) paper plates sticking up sideways a brown folded over paper bag of maybe cherries all week long he's looked forward to this day nothing's better than setting off on an all-day outing in summer to the park by the river the familiar houses and vacant lots no longer sitting there with nothing to do but drifting toward you through this car window the heat of the sun-warmed seat burning you through your jeans the bottoms of your feet already feeling the pebbly ground pushing up on them as he walked from the parking lot to the picnic grounds above the riverbank. But now he's here, right here. His jeans tossed in the back seat of the car and his T-shirt stuffed in his mother's straw bag, the sun on one edge of the table and the piney shade covering it, Grandma already setting up the chair and so the day's about to get going at last, the day he's been looking forward to in the hot nights while watching bars of light slide across the wall from passing cars. He's here. He's arrived. He's ready to begin. Though who's to say when anything really begins? You could say the day began when they passed the wooden sign with the words Indian Cove and the outline of a tomahawk on the curve of a road with a double yellow line down the middle and yellow Brown wooden posts with red reflectors. Or maybe it all started when the car backed up the slope of the driveway and the tires bumped over the sidewalk between the knee-high pricker hedges. Mm -hmm. Or what if it happened before that when he woke up this morning and saw the day stretching out before him like a whole summer of blue afternoons? But he's only playing, just fooling around, because he knows exactly when it all begins. It begins when he enters the water. That's the agreement he's made with himself. Summer after summer, that's just how it is. This day begins in the river, and everything else leads up to it. Whoops. Here's the news. It goes on and on. I was going to read you the next page. And the last page isn't here. So I'm going to tell you the rest of it. It's beautiful, isn't it? So what do you think so far is going to happen? It's going to be over too soon. It's going to be over too soon? Hmm? It's going to go on and on, and it gets—it it goes long. on. It's beautiful writing, isn't it? Beautiful writing. Mm-hmm. And I read it, and it stretches on and on, and I thought, uh-oh, something's going to happen to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I see Lucy's, but well, Lucy may have my kind of a mind. <laughs> Anybody here thought, uh-oh, something could happen? Yeah. Yeah. He's going to yeah. get a tummy ache. He's, he ate too much of the food. <laughs> He's he's a, he could either get a stomach ache or he's would drown, or the grandmother on the cliff could fall in. <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> hmm? <laughs> bears could come. <laughs> Phyllis said bears could come. So It's so beautiful. You know, It gets built up where a, a, a paper bag with, with paper plates and Oreo cookies sticking out of it is a work of art. You can see it in your mind getting closer, getting closer, getting closer. And, he, and it gets closer, closer, closer. And I actually, when I was reading it, I was getting tenser and tenser and tenser. It didn't print out the end of it. And when he walked, and, and, uh, and he walks up to the river's edge and he feels the stones. And he puts his foot in the river. And he said, well, that's over. And that's all that happens. Uh-huh. Nothing happens to the grandmother. She doesn't fall in the water. <laughs> doesn't get a tummy ache. He doesn't drown. But in this, you read all the pleasure of anticipation, of anticipation, of anticipation, and then once it's happened, it's finished. You can't anticipate. So I think first the the, the pleasure of anticipation, but also the inevitable march of the future up to now. You know. I, I, I've been thinking about, I've been particularly thinking about time I suppose because I just had my birthday two weeks ago and, and I, I really continue to be startled. How do you get to be 75? You know you live 75 years obviously but, <laughs> but and if anybody asked me what you were doing, what were you doing in your 50s or your 60s I could actually tell them I was doing this or I was here I was there but it, does, it seems to have taken about 10 seconds since I was young, to get here. It just disappears in a poof because it's not here anymore. It's gone. It's all gone. And it's not even here. Now, once once he steps into the water, it's finished. The whole anticipation. He'll swim. He'll have the lemonade. He'll do all that stuff. But he won't have the anticipation of doing it, which is so exciting. I think about that so much when I'm part of people planning a wedding and millions of things, you know, like, should we put confetti in the wedding invitations when we send them out? There's a part of me that thinks it's the same wedding with or without the confetti, and uh, it doesn't matter. But in that minute, it does. It's because these particular folks are so excited about the wedding and for them it's meaningful to put confetti. Not only confetti, we'll put glitter. You know that uh, that the the mind, the anticipating, looking forward, looking forward, looking forward, and we're looking forward, and it passes, and we look, for, and then we get married, and then the next thing, and then the next thing, and then the next thing. There was a uh, a cartoon I had years ago. Probably I took it out of the New Yorker, where I get most of them, that had. Um, a, uh, I, uh, it was a picture of the inside of a room, and it was uh, rather than a regular room, it had a door on this side and a door on this side, and the the center of the room, going from door A to door B in a way you might have a, a uh, you might have a runner, a rug, had a conveyor belt, <laughs> and uh, uh, this door said entrance, and that one said exit. And there were figures on the conveyor belt. And there's a baby over here getting on the conveyor belt, crawling onto it on all fours. And then there's a little child walking. And then there's an adolescent child. And then there's a person in their full vigor of adulthood. And then there's a person a little bit hunched over. And then there's a person leaning on a cane going out the other door. And over the back wall, there's a sign that says, no loitering. That's the whole cartoon. That's the whole cartoon, and you know. Uh, so I, you know, we laugh, but I think that part of that laugh is, is it's funny. It's a little bit surprising. It's a good cartoon, but also, daan daan It's true. When my father was, in uh, and it's, oh, it it has about it, a couple of things. It's not all bad. First of all. It, uh, I remember telling my, uh, my uh, Joseph Goldstein, who was one of my first teachers, um, I had had some experience maybe of seeing a flower just beginning to open one day and the next day see it completely already wilted uh, along with lots of other realizations that, uh, of coming and going. I'd come on the retreat, it was almost coming to an end. All the thi- I, And I came and said to him, you know, everything dies and he said it does. And I said, it's so sad. And he said, no, it's not sad. He said, it's just true. And I, I remember that from a lot of years. And so I think it's not sad. It's just true. Uh, but it's poignant. It's poignant. That's what's the right, I think, the right word. Uh, which is a very, actually now I'm thinking about it. My friend Danny Shapiro um, mm-hmm is a novelist of some note, and uh, she's a very good fiction writer and non-fiction writer. I was talking to her yesterday, and we were talking about um, <coughs> somebody's definition. We were talking about writing and the craft of writing, and she teaches writer's workshops. And she was talking about, um, she said, some people think that uh, you think of... Um, Anyway, she said, this is how things happen in a, in, a, in a novel. There's a character and then there's another character and then whatever happens that makes some sense of poignancy and then there's a plot, you know, that some, some feeling comes, you know, whatever it is, a baby is born, a boy puts his foot in the water. Uh, there's some, the poignancy in, in, that, in that boy put the foot in the water is for me, not the foot in the water, it's in the acuity of his senses until he puts the foot in the water, that the, sees every single thing and thinks every single thing about it. And he thinks, when did this start? You know, that's another, such a, a, a wonderful part of that. Where well, it didn't start maybe when I came here to this beach. Maybe it started when I got up this morning Maybe it started when we rolled out of the driveway. Maybe we started when we went by the, these houses and passed onto the country road. When did, when did it start? When did it start? When did it start? Because if we any of us did, when did it start? It started forever back. It wasn't the beginning. It wasn't the beginning. It actually started when he was born, but it started before he was born. It started before he was born when he was conceived. And then it started before he was conceived by the fact that his parents liked each other enough to do that and conceive this child, which meant that they had to be born in certain places in order to meet each other. That everything doesn't, you know, karma has such a a tremendous, the Buddha called it uh, one of the imponderables. You can't know. You can't say it's because of this that this happened or because of you. It's because of everything, that everything happens. I, I I used to, when I told something like that, I'd say Marco Polo is part of my karmic thread, <laughs> which usually causes people to laugh like that. Um, Marco Polo is sort of what we're thinking. But Marco Polo opened trade routes to the to Asia, which changed the economic climate of Europe, which changed the political climate of Europe, both of which caused large numbers of poor groups of people to emigrate to the United States. Among them, uh, my grandfather from Austria, my grandmother from Austria, who met him after they arrived in the United States, who produced my mother, and my uh, grandfather and my grandmother from um, Southeast Poland, who produced my father, but uh, in the United States. So I was born in the United States. But it had to really, if you go back, 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 Maybe if Marco Polo hadn't opened those trade routes, they, they they would still be there and everybody would still be in other places. It's a tremendous thing to really uh, get karma. I keep getting it more and more. What it does is it makes it easier, I think, for me to uh, accommodate things that are hard to accommodate if I figure, well, you know, not it was written, but it's it's what could be the only thing that happened now. I want to talk also about, go back again to time, because I've been thinking about the time business. Uh, impermanence having to do with the passage of time that sometimes we think poignant, look, everything gets old. Um, when my father was dying in the Raphael Convalescent Home, There are a lot of people in wheelchairs, you know, sitting in the hall in those slumped ways that people are sitting in halls when they're really not well and near the end of their life. And over the um, nurse's station, there was a beautiful framed picture up on the wall of a very beautiful, lovely-looking young woman uh, with an old-fashioned hairdo and a Gibson girl collar. And so you know that that photo was from a long time ago. And a beautiful woman, and my guess was that she was one of those women sitting in one of those wheelchairs. Yeah. And uh, every time I went by, I thought one of these women, maybe all of these women, at some point looked like that woman over the, over the nurses' station there. If we all of us look at look at our own baby pictures, we're very cute. <laughs> we're very cute. Babies are always very cute. They're, you know that. But the other thing that I've been thinking about is the consoling aspect of Everything Passes. I read, um, I read a, a, a story. I won't read you the story, but I'll tell you about it. I read a story in the July 17th issue this year of The New Yorker, it's July 11th, so you can look for it if you want it, and it's called Cycling, and it's a story of Bicyclists, um, here they are, bicyclists in the Tour de Rwanda. You know, they have a Tour de France and a Tour d'Espagne and a Tour d'Italia, and they actually have a race across the United States as well. They have a tour of Rwanda of cyclists. Mm-hmm. Impossible. When you think about the terrible, terrible, unthinkable carnage that happened in 19... 19- 94 with Hutus and uh, Tutsis, people who had lived together next door to each other for years, being goaded to kill neighbors. To, to uh, they, The number of people, I keep, I keep forgetting it because I don't want to even say it, is such a big number that you can't believe it every time you read it. At least 800,000 people 800,000 people, that's almost a million people, were exterminated in a hundred days. That's a huge, huge massacre. And, and in terrible, terrible ways with machetes and... Uh, uh. So the young athletes in this now current Tour de Rwanda, they tell many of the life stories of them I'll read you the first paragraph. Um, Gasor Hatagika bought his first bicycle in 2008. It was heavily used Chinese single speed and it cost 35,000 Rwandan francs, roughly $60. Gasor, who was about 20 years old, had worked for nearly half his life before he could afford it. His father had once owned a bicycle And though Gasor told me that he could not remember much from when he was young, he said, I liked how the bike worked, the device. I remember him carrying me on the bike to work the fields far from our village. And so when my father died, I thought of the bike. His father was killed. He said, it was my dream always. It was in my head, the bike. When Gasor spoke of the bike, he meant something almost mystical the embodiment of an ideal of self-propulsion. He goes on to tell about working in the potato fields, (coughs) saving up enough money, picking up potatoes in sacks to sell them to potato wholesalers, and finally having enough (coughs) money to get a bike so he could take his potatoes further and sell them to more people and put sacks of potatoes in the back. And then seeing the tour de Rwanda, uh, seeing Rwandan cyclists (coughs) Uh, because Rwanda has built itself back up, is building itself up, Rwandan cyclists in rural areas uh, uh, practicing, and he'd say, I'd see the team coming in their beautiful colored jerseys, and they'd come zipping along, and I would try to keep up with them in my bike, mm-hmm. with a wagon on the back, pulling a wagon oh, okay. with sacks of potatoes in it, and uh, on, a, on a one-speed Chinese-used bike, and they've got this and he said I would try so hard to keep up with them and I more and more I could keep up a little bit and by and by one of the coaches noticed him and picked him up and trained him. Then in 2008 he bought that bike and in 2011 he's a cyclist in the Tour de Rwanda and he cycles amazingly, brilliantly. But the part that I really wanted to read to you well, there are two parts. One, I can tell you by heart. The Rwandan cyclists are, come from both Hutu and Tutsi backgrounds. And he said the cyclists, they hang out together, they cycle together, they go on tour to South Africa, all over together, and they don't ask each other, what are you? He said, although they can probably figure it out, because <clears throat> when you say to people, what village do you come from, mm. you could probably figure it out. He said, but they don't want to know what they say is that's behind us that's not now and it's not an identity that we want now we are making a new identity we are Rwandan cyclists we are not hutu or tutsi we're beyond that i think to myself for that you need the passage of some time and you need the 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 the, the truth that things do not need the things don't stay permanent unless we make an attempt nothing stays permanent number 1 But even grudges and feuds, which seem permanent and pass through generations, they're just things that we decide to make permanent and pass through generations. Nothing is permanent. If we let it go, the story that we tell ourselves, I'm a Hutu, he's a Tutsi. I'm a Bosnian, he's a Serb. I'm a Palestinian, he's an Arab. He's an Israeli. I'm a German, he's a Frenchman. If we put down that stories, then we become cyclists or people or whatever it is that we're doing together. He said they don't want to know. They said that's something that already happened. Our identity is Rwandan cyclist. And at some point, I, and their, their, their uh, main team manager, their, their, their coach, was a coach in American cycling. And they tell his whole story, which I can't tell you in the amount of time. But for complicated reasons, he was championship-winning coast-to-coast races, amazing cyclist from, if I remember correctly, a difficult background, who, uh, at the same time that he was a great coach, got into some serious uh, legal and criminal difficulties and uh, actually was accused of uh, some form of sexual abuse, which... Anyway, he, he, I think he did time for maybe a year. And after that, uh, somebody said, you ought to come to Rwanda and see what's going on here. And he went to Rwanda not knowing what he was going to do there and somehow got hooked up with his bicycle team and somehow stayed, became the coach of this bicycle team. So the Hutus and the Tutsis are cycling and not carrying their identity. Neither is he. As a matter of fact, one his chief assistant, who's either his partner or his wife at this point, I'm not sure. uh, The interviewer interviews her and says, "You know, weren't you worried about getting together with him and marrying him? You know, after his background?" She said, "No, that was then. Now is now. You know, those were those circumstances. These are different circumstances." And uh, this other uh, man, who uh, Tom Ritchie, who developed. who was the inventor of mountain bikes was somehow also over there and involved with training that team. So they have a they have a road team. They have a mountain bike team. Uh, Tom Ritchie was over there, and uh, there. Tom was it says here. Tom was astonished when he came over. Tom was a celebrated bike designer, bike builder. He's the inventor of the mountain bike, and his work had made him wealthy. But his wife had just left him set off for the trip in despair. Rwanda snapped him out of it. A decade after the genocide, an an influx of foreign visitors had come to Rwanda, and like many of them, Tom was astonished to find that the country felt alive with belief for a better future. For Rwandans, existence meant forgiveness, or at least a capacity to endure the unforgivable. I love that line. That's actually why I brought that whole article. I wanted to read you that line. Existence meant forgiveness, or at least a capacity to endure the unforgivable. You Think about that. And I I think a lot... I'm all right with the word forgiveness there. Um, Often I would like to change the word forgiveness to the word wisdom... Because forgiveness, there's always an I who I'm forgiving you. And I think the wisdom to know that things happen for reasons who knows what. But they aren't who anybody inevitably is or remains. They're just what happened then. The trainer who had this difficulty in his background is a trainer who had difficulty in his background, but not now. And these young cyclists whose families had tremendous animosity and tremendous clan loyalty have, are <clears throat> eager to not be clan people and to be regular people, Rwandans, for which their mind has to forgive the unforgivable. 800,000 people killed in front of a, in front of a cities, massacred, people running with their children, children slaughtered in front of them. Forgive the unforgivable. And I don't know how you can do that unless you really want, unless the mind is really so eager to continue to exist. That line, forgiveness means existence, seems to me the important line. That we don't really exist. We're not really alive unless we can somehow let go of whatever it is that horribly has hurt us I've known in my life numbers of people who uh, actually um, Jews who were in uh, in France and Germany and Austria and Czechoslovakia and all those places uh, during the time of um, after 1939 until 1945. Sometimes with stories so incredibly terrible that you think it's a, impossible that they came out of that. But they did. And I, I've really wondered a lot, because I've known a fair number, about why, why it is that some of them, and I, I want to say this in a way that's not at all pejorative, because I actually have a lot of compassion for the fact that this is true. The people I've known closely, because they were part of my synagogue community Some people, they came here, they made lives, they had families, they had children, they thrived. This has not been since then an anti-Semitic culture. It was early in the century, but not anymore. And for some people, it was possible for them to let go of the unbearable. And I have the sense that they say, phew, I'm out of that, thank goodness, and now I'm having a life. And for other people, they seem not to have been able to go out of it, that their whole continued life is um, carrying the burden of it. In any conversation, that person is likely to say, I remember the time we were in the camps, and the camps are 60 years ago now, but for some reason or other, and I feel terrible for for when this happens, their minds are not able to leave when they did, or somehow, recover from it. And really the science of trauma is, is, now it begins to be a science of trauma and people are studying it really. But people don't know why. Some people's minds have more recuperability in it than, than other people. Not because they're better people or they try harder, uh, just because that's the way it is. Everybody's got a different nature. I think about that as being part of the karma as well. It's just what happens. It's part of our genetics. It's part of, it's certainly part of our community and where we grow up and how people teach us. But I think also part of our genetics. I find it all quite awesome. But I think that uh, with the passage of time, so that, that considering the passage of time which is Maybe what I, I wanted to call today's class is considering the passage of time. I was thinking about it the other day. Um, when, I, when I, You probably remember, some of you will remember, they used to have newsreels in the movies. Do you go to the movies on a Saturday afternoon? And then they'd have a double feature and they'd have a cartoon, Donald Duck or Looney Tunes. And then they'd have a newsreel and then they'd have a double feature. And the newsreel would start with very stentorious music and a voiceover that said, Time Marches On. <laughs> Do you remember that? You remember that? You know, I think it was, I think it was actually because the news was, produ- by, was produced by time, War- time Warner News Company. And it was actually the Time Marches On taking these newsreels. But Time Marches On. But it does. It does. Uh, you know, I don't know, You know, how long will we, 20 years from now, I don't know how many of the people here now, some people are young, uh, it could be uh, 10 years maybe, 5, okay, but you know, you don't know. And uh, both to uh, depend on time, to give the mind the time to recuperate from trauma so that it can be able to... Um, Manage, I'm not even going to say heal from, manage from having to endure the, un, un, what does it say? Forgive the unforgivable, endure the unforgivable. One of these main riders says, um, at one point, he says, I need to ride. If I don't ride every day, he said, if three days go by and I haven't ridden, I start getting my terrible nightmares and headaches and seeing visions again. So I have to keep riding. It keeps me sane. Maybe someday when he's old and he can't ride 100 miles a day, maybe at some point he'll be able to have space in it. I think so much about that word forgive because it doesn't mean excuse or condone. It just means I think make space for or understand that this happened and it's finished. Um, So maybe one more thing to say about time because we've... One more time, because we ran out of time. Uh, I know that some of you know that last summer, I'm, I'm still so struck with this. I was in Strasbourg last summer, and um, they have a tremendous They have a cathedral in Strasbourg and a, and a bonging clock that has uh, figures that come out, as they do often in German and Austrian clocks. This is a very big clock, and it isn't on top of the cathedral. It's in it. It's in it, you see you go into the cathedral and you walk down the nave, and then on one side in the front, here's this big clock, and it only does its thing once a day at noon, and uh, uh, tourists start a uh, um, gathering before noon because they this is its one chance to come out and do its thing, and um. Uh, they start gathering before noon, which is a little problematic because the, the, the clock is out of sync and it doesn't bong until 12.20, and, <laughs> and they can't fix it somehow. The best, they, they, they explain in the brochure, the best clock fixes, they can't fix this whole mechanism, so that it'll bong at noon. So everybody comes in and there's no place to sit down, you're standing, your back starts there, but nobody goes away because they want to see it happening. And, so, and they, so they show you some slideshows in three languages uh, where they're explaining what it's about and what the clock means. And uh, it's very touching, so that by the time the clock does it. So it has at least two tracks. You know how figures come out and they go around the track and they go in here. And uh, one of the tracks Oh, I think it has Jesus over here on the top yes. with blessing hands. And so finally bungs, bongs, and the bottom track comes out, and it's a figure of, uh, of death, father time, a figure of death, a hooded black figure carrying a sickle and that comes around on its thing and goes here. And then the second track comes out, and what you realize is that those are the apostles coming out, uh-huh and walking under the blessing of Jesus, and then they go over here. And what it said and in, the, in the slides explaining what it was about, it says it's meant to convey the message that life is short, and uh, in order to open yourself up to blessings, uh, you, need to, you, you need to keep in mind that life is short, and the message is what are you doing uh, to make sure that you have converted your heart to love, uh, to, to converted your heart fully to love in this lifetime, and by the time they say that, and this, oh, and what's happening is, you, so you're meant to think to yourself, what have I done to convert my heart fully to love in this lifetime, and then this starts happening, and there's bonging. And you start to feel the urgency of time. What have I done to convert my heart fully in this lifetime? Have I done it? Have I not done it? What do I have to do next? Is there any enmity in my heart? What could I do? This is my prayer, I hope it happens. But it's actually quite a stunning experience when you're there. So I'm thinking about that, you know, 75, But you know. I can't do any of my now of my three score years and ten because I passed that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in what I have left, what have I done to convert myself to kindness? What have we, any of us, done? So, for the merit, ah, Marty. Wow. Oh yeah, okay. Let me let me ding. <laughs> May the merit that we accrue be offered for the well-being of all beings everywhere. Joe will turn off the... Wait, wait, wait. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.